0: Thank you, David. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus, and if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series on hope. The church is the hope of the world, is what we've called it. And I know that may sound absolutely ridiculous to you. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but we've been talking a lot about hope, and hope uh, is a word uh, in English we use a lot. We say, you know, I hope uh, I, don't, uh, I do well on this test, I hope I get into my top school, I hope I don't get sick, right? We hope for all kinds of things, and we use that word a lot, but that is not the kind of hope that we have here. This is not the kind of hope we've been talking about. Uh, one of the most uh, cathartic things I've done personally this year for myself is after uh, a bad Royals loss, I will go back onto YouTube and, and watch a World Series game again, Uh you're laughing because you do it too, and I know I know that you do. Uh, my wife thinks I'm crazy when I when I do that, but it's just it's her, it's because she doesn't she doesn't understand she doesn't get it. Um, <laughs> did you know that uh, that was a 53 inning World Series, uh, the Royal, Royals Mets, and the Royals were tied in 16 of those. They were losing in 24, and they were only ahead in 13, which is crazy, right? I mean, on paper you look at that; they have no business at winning those games. And you remember, if you're a big Royals fan, you remember those 24 innings when they were losing, right? Especially late into the game. Uh, my fingernails have still not recovered uh, from those games and the, the, the agony of watching your team down in those, in those late innings. And here's what my wife doesn't get, okay? Watching it again, seeing the Mets, you know, they're high-fiving each other, yeah, we're going to win, we're, we're ahead in the game, right? And they send in their, you know, their ace closer. Nobody hits this guy. This game's over. Uh, and and uh, it's like everything that made me nauseous at the moment, at the time, right? And yelling at the TV and throwing the remote and trying not to wake up my kids and um, was only gave me more joy the second time through, right? <laughs> everything that was bad is now good. It's part of the drama. There I am, right? I'm usually, I got it on my phone. I'm doing the dishes, watching the Royals come back for another win, and my wife is like, what are you doing? Because I'm laughing, and I'm cheering, and I'm crying all over again like I did in 2015, because everything about it is different when you see it a second time. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you know how it's going to end, right? That is the hope we have. That is what we're talking about. That's the hope we have in the church. It's not a wish. It's not a dream. It's something bigger than you and me. It's faith in a God who is over all and in control. It's not luck. It's not stubborn courage. It's not the power of positive thinking. Biblical hope, the kind we have, is knowing how the game ends. And that kind of hope changes everything. Doesn't it? It changes everything. We've been in the book of Ephesians the last few weeks, and you just heard it read, part of it. And we've been trying to remind ourselves that as a church, we are called to be the hope of the world. And that I know that sounds crazy. But Paul has been showing us again and again that the church, as broken as it is sometimes, as imperfect as it is, is God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. Week one, we talked about the hope that the, the church is hope for me. It has the best story for my brokenness and my fears, my failures, and my sin. The church... It's hope for us was last week. It's hope for our most painful relationships can be reconciled. Our most violent and deep divisions as a society and as a world have hope here. Not just hope for me and mine. And our hope doesn't exist just for us either. And this week what we want to say is the, 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 the church has hope for all, for everyone. We exist to spread this hope and to share it with what is often a hopeless world. So, why church? That's what we've been asking. Why church? And this, the answer to this better humble us. Why church? Because there's hope here, but not just for us, for all, for everyone. The church is one of the only institutions I can think of, anyway, that exists for the good of those who aren't even here. That's the only reason this whole church thing makes sense. It's the only reason this church thing is worth it. If you've been in church for a while, a long time, you know how hard it can be, how messy it can be, how disappointing at times it can be. But one of the most important reasons we stick with this is for the people who are not yet here, but need to be, who need hope, but don't have it yet. It can't just be about us. It can't just be about us. Or we are anything but the hope of the world. This hope we have here, it changes everything, but that's only true if we let it change us first. And that's really what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 4. We cannot be the hope of the world unless this hope we have changes everything about us first. So here's really simply, here's here's what I want us to see in God's word today as we look at Ephesians. Okay, We, we, We cannot be the hope of the world unless the hope we have makes us new, unless it makes us strange, and unless it makes us love. Hope makes us new, it makes us strange, And it makes us love. So first, hope makes us new. Turn to Ephesians 4, if you have your Bible. Um, And we're going to start there. I'm going to read at verse 22 again in Ephesians 4. Here's how Paul puts this. He says, here's what hope does to you. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ. He's talking about the former way of life. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is really the same theme we talked about two weeks ago, but the first thing this hope does when we receive it is it makes us brand new people. Paul says, there's a new self for you now. Put it on. Live that way. And I cannot stress this enough here. I know we talk a lot about this, but the hope of the good news we have, let me summarize that good news for you. Christ died for you and rose again for you. The hope we have in that gospel is not that because of that we can become better people. It is not the hope we have. It is not that we can become moral religious people. The world is full of moral people, decent people. You do not have to have Christian hope to do that. You don't need biblical hope to be a good person. You don't. But you need that hope to be a new person. This hope we have is not that we can make ourselves better people, but that by God's power we are made into brand new people. The world doesn't need more moral people. Paul is writing this to Greco-Roman culture. Okay, Greco-Roman culture is still the, the leading Western thinkers in ethics and morality. Plato, right? Socrates, Aristotle. That's who this is the culture Paul is writing to. This is not an immoral group of people. The world doesn't need the church to be more moral, it needs the church to be a brand new. To show the world a whole new way to be a human being in relationship to God. That is what we do. Paul is saying that kind of new life is possible here in the church, and we aren't the hope of the world unless we're made new. So here's my question. Are we becoming new? Are we becoming new together? If we want to have this hope and to share it, we've got to become new. That starts with giving your life to Jesus, betting it all on Him, and following Him with everything you've got. If you've done that, if you've made that decision in your life, then ask yourself, are you putting on the new self or are you still content with and living with the old? Are you putting to death the parts of your life that defined you before Jesus or outside of Jesus? Look at Paul's list here in chapter four. He, he lays it out what this looks like, this old life. Is your heart still hard? Do you not listen to him? Do you not want to obey God? Do you live like God is alienated from you? Like you're alone in the world. Are you enslaved to sensuality and the pursuit of pleasure? Are you greedy? For power or money or uh, accolade or applause? Are you consumed with anger and bitterness? See, that's the old life. Or are you putting on the new self? Do you love the truth even when it hurts, even when it's hard to hear? Do you love the truth? Are you humble enough to repent and be honest about your weaknesses and your failures, the worst parts of yourself? Can you rejoice in those things publicly because you know they're forgiven in Christ. You see, that is more than moral. That's a brand new way to be human. I don't want to belabor the point. I I know we did a whole sermon on this, but the world doesn't need more moral judgment and more moral advice. It's got plenty of that. Plenty. Plenty to go around. What it needs is new people. Are we becoming new? And are we becoming strange? That's the second thing you see here, hope. It makes us strange. Now, that's probably something we can all agree on. Church is weird, (laughs) right? Whether you've been here a long time or this is your first time here, you're like, amen, church is a weird place. It should be. It should be. There's just no way around it. People of hope, new people, they're strange. You see, at least in my experience, what's normal is often pessimism and cynicism and despair and hopelessness. And I, you can, you, I feel that around us sometimes. That's, that's the emphasis in our media and in our leadership as a culture. Hope, it feels out of place. It feels weird. So Paul describes these many ways that hope should make us a strange people in the world. He's not trying to be exhaustive here, but I want to point out two things he lists here that, that should stand out about us. And basically, he says, use words that build and work to serve. Let your work be service. Use words to build and work that serves. Now, now think about how strange it is to say out loud words that build. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He says again, put away falsehood, speak only the truth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, with all that in mind, when is the last time you read a Facebook post and thought there was no bitterness or wrath or slander in that? That really built me up. I'm glad I read those internet comments. What grace. Right? Why? Why why do we say things on the internet that we would never say, never say to each other face to face? How different would life be if our goal, just within our own, let me keep it really small, just within our family, with our spouses, our kids, our roommates, if we only used words that build instead of words that tear down? Would that be strange in your school or in your workplace to not talk behind someone's back? My guess is that that would, that would stand out, and I say this as one whose words often get him in trouble. I talk a lot, you know that, Um, you didn't need me to tell you that, and I often talk uh, without thinking about what the impact is of what I'm saying. I like to be funny, Uh, that often comes out sarcastically, if you know me at all, and sometimes, thank you for that affirmation, yes. (laughs) And sometimes I tear down because it's an easy laugh. But it's, you know, sometimes, and then sometimes I excuse it, right? That's how everybody talks, no big deal. That's, that's Conan and Colbert and Jon Stewart and John Oliver. That's what they do. That's what our political leaders do. That's what political talk shows do, right? When's the last time you watched a political show, liberal, conservative, I don't care, and, and you left encouraged about life? <laughs> you felt strengthened in your faith right? You left with more love for your neighbor who's different from you. See, but that kind of speech, it gets views, it gets clicks, it pays the bills, and so we keep doing it. But Paul says that is not how we are to talk. We have to stand out. He says, be weird. Use your words to build. Even when you're angry, and you will be angry, that's okay. There's real evil in the world that we need to be angry at. But even when you're angry, even when you disagree, even when you are right and they are wrong, use words that build. Strange would look so good if we could do that. The other big category that Paul gives here is uh, be strange people in our work. Here's how he says it in verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may be able to have something to share with anyone in need. Now, that's, that sounds very simple, doesn't it? Right? Work hard, don't steal, and be generous to those in need. But as simple as that sounds, tell that to Wells Fargo, right? I mean, that's not where we live. Paul says, don't use your work for injustice, for taking advantage of people. Use it to serve your neighbor. You see, work, hard work is not unusual. Lots of people work really hard. Honest work is not unusual. Most people I know, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. They they don't long to steal from people. But here's what stands out. Look at the reason Paul gives, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Who does that? He's saying, look at your savings account. Look at your surplus. Look at your retirement savings. Your portfolio, and think, who needs that outside of me and mine? But who does that? See, for most of our culture, work, the story we tell about work is that work is a means of self-fulfillment and self-happiness and providing for me and the people like me. Paul says, for new people, for hopeful people, work is about worship to God and about service to your neighbor You see, we're supposed to wake up and think about making or providing an excellent product, not simply for our own sake, but because it is a tangible way to love our neighbor, our customer, our employee, our student, our community. And that's strange, isn't it? That that's our vision. Here's the big picture here. Here's what I want to ask. What if our goal as a church was to be strange in all the right ways, How how backwards would that be with our work and our words and everything we do? Not different in the the off-putting, offensive way. Some of us are already really good at that. (laughs) That's not what Paul means. Strange in the best ways. The world is full of normal people. Normal is normal. And it's killing us. It's not enough. What if the church were a strange place? What if we tried something different? This hit me in a new way Uh, recently. uh, My wife, Becca, and I were listening to a a podcast from a conference. The speaker was uh, Jen Wilkins, it's her name, and her talk was called Raising an Alien Child. It's a great title. I'll tell you what, the, the podcast destroyed me. Destroyed me. She didn't put it exactly this way, but here's basically what she said. She said, people of hope, new people in Christ, should be raising their kids in such a way that they don't fit in and are okay with that, can handle that. And let me tell you, that is not my default mode as a parent. And it's not my default mode as a human being. But if our goal in life is to fit in, if our goal in life, if our most aspirational goal is to look like the best version of everyone else around us, to be normal, then we have misunderstood the radical hope within and we are missing the life that Jesus wants for us. The church ought to be a place where we can become beautifully strange together. This is a place for a peculiar people, people who live for something else, they look for something else, they long for something better, who don't accept the status quo as okay. Instead, this is a place where we serve each other, we put others ahead of ourselves with humility and grace, who welcome people who are not like us, people the world discards, what if that was us? Because even in our strangeness, that's not for us either. Our stra- it's, it's hope, it's being different for the sake of other people, for the sake of all. Because hope should make us love differently. Hope changes the way we love. Even the way we love, this hope, which really holds this whole passage together. Here's how Paul finishes this whole section. It's in chapter 5. He he starts with, therefore, which means everything I've just said. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is saying this, this hope should feel new, but it's really not new. He said this life will feel strange, but it's really, it's actually what you were supposed to be doing from the beginning. The self-sacrificing love, putting others ahead of yourself, it feels impossible, but it's already been done for you. See, that hope makes us new and strange. And what we're doing is we're simply imitating God himself. We are bearing his image as his people. Paul is really just saying, get back to how God made you in the first place. That is your calling. And it's in us to live that way. He designed us for that. And the world needs people, yes, who who obey God and live moral lives and are are strange and stand out, but not because we're robots or legalists or we think we are better than anybody else, but because we know that in Christ we are beloved children of the Father. We can walk in love, self-sacrificing love even, because Jesus has already done that for us. He gave himself up for us. We imitate him. It's really as simple as that. What the world needs is is more God imitators. Which means we, we give ourselves away even when it hurts, because Jesus did it first. The world doesn't have anything like that. But we do. Can we love it like Jesus does? Can we love and give and sacrifice for people who are not yet here, who are not a part of this church, who are hostile even to the church? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. We were hostile, says Paul in Ephesians. We were far off, but he brought us near. So what if we were a people of hope? What if people entered these doors here and at all of our campuses, all over the city, and they were blown away by the hope that they found? What if we put out that welcome mat, right, like Tom talked about last week? We put out the church welcome mat and we communicate in every handshake and smile and conversation and handout and coffee cup and donut hole that this is not a perfect place, but it is a hopeful place. There is a tremendous hope available here for you. What if our church was known? in Kansas City and Johnson County as a place that gives itself away for the community? What if people who disagreed with us fundamentally on what we believe and why we believe it, but they still tipped their cap and said that place puts their money where their mouth is? What if Elon Ministries and the church in Iran and all of our global partners, they could look at us and say, they take this as seriously as we do? So you think about the global church that we've been praying for, they don't they don't have a choice about being weird. <laughs> they stand out. They're a minority for the most part where they are. What if we were a place that chose that? And how we work and how we talk to each other. See for pastors and for churches, it's so easy. It is so easy. It's so subtle to turn in. Even without thinking about it, we start thinking and planning and resourcing things that are designed to keep us comfortable and insulated and safe, that don't push us to keep moving. And before we know it, we're not hope for the world. We're not even hope for ourselves. And here at the Leewood campus, we've sent people out, friends, family, staff, to start three other campuses in the Kansas City area, in the metro. And I, maybe you are here for one, maybe you're here for three, maybe you're here for none. As one who was here for two, I can tell you, I, it hurt every single time, every time to do that. I remember when we launched uh, Shawnee Mission Campus, uh, my, uh, our, our small group, our community group here sent out two amazing families to go be a part of that campus. And I, can, I gotta be honest with you, it was hard to get excited about that. Sometimes because of the cost, it's easy for me to question, why do we, why do, we do this? Why don't we just hunker down and be normal for like one year, just one year? I know we all, it's like, I want to be excited about the mission out there and what God's doing out there, but can we just focus on me and what I want for one second? <laughs> I was just in Topeka a few weeks ago. I'm part of the EFCA's credentialing board, which basically means in the process of ordination, I'm a part of the board that helps make that decision for pastors in the, in the Midwest district of the EFCA. Uh, Last time I was there, Andrew Campbell, who's a pastor at the Shawnee Mission Campus, uh, was giving his oral defense. Um, And uh, it was great. He has to give an oral defense of his theological paper, which means I got to grill him for two hours, which I I really enjoyed that part. Um, (laughs) But the, the part I will not forget was when he brought in his character witnesses. So at the end of that time, he brings in two people from his life that can testify to his character as a person and as a pastor. And he brought someone from that old community group of mine. His name is Derek. He's someone I miss very much. Someone I don't get to see very often anymore. To speak about his character. And I sat there, and I listened to Derek describe what that church has meant to him and that family. How Andrew has poured into his life. And how he is now leading a community group, Derek is, of people who were not a part of Christ's community three years ago. And I had to think in that moment, if if we hadn't said no to good things so that we could say yes to another campus plant, where would those people be? In that moment, right, I remembered, I remembered why we do this thing called church, why we keep pushing, we keep sending, we keep risking and putting our trust in God. And you know what, after all that, That's the church I want to be. That's it. I want to be a part of a church that's new and is strange and believes in God and what he's capable of doing when people put everything on him. They bet it all. What he can do in that moment, even when it's hard and when it hurts and when it's scary, because there is hope in that kind of church. There's hope in that church. And there's hope here at Christ Community. I hope... You sense it and feel it. God is up to something here. It's bigger than we are. And he's showing us that this kind of hope, this outward-facing, sacrificial, loving hope, changes everything.
1: Just watch. Before coming to Christ, I I was absent uh, of, of an identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was. My life was lived with this hollow emptiness within my soul, within my heart. And I tried to fill that with gangs. and and sense of identity and family. And so uh, I had the Harley, I I, I carried my my pistol, my gun. Uh, I dealt in drugs and I did drugs. And uh, my life was spiraling out of control, out of control, out of control. I had destroyed my family. I had destroyed my friendships and every relationship that I had, uh, I sought to hurt the people involved. God led me to a, a gondola Uh, on Beaver Creek uh, Resort where I met a guy who I don't want to call a guy. I think he was an angel who came to me and preached the gospel message to me for the very first time in my whole life. And I was 26 years old. I wanted him to keep his mouth shut and, and, and leave me alone. But he kept yapping and yapping, yapping. And then the words caught me. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jeff, the hope for your life. I didn't surrender my life right then and there. I didn't have a come-to-Jesus moment. I didn't have that Damascus Road experience, but I walked away from that day knowing that I wanted to go on a a search for it. I went on these other journeys, and, and everything was meaningless. There was no hope in it. There was loss and rejection and pain until eventually I said, forget it all. I'm done. I was done with life. I was done with the misery that I left behind. I hurt a lot of people. I've got a lot of destruction in my, in my past, uh, uh, damaged uh, relationships, and, and people that uh, our lives are forever changed because of my criminal activity. And I couldn't live with the pain of that, the hopelessness of it. There, there was no answer. There's no answer for redemption or restoration there was nothing there and I was hollow I was hollow inside and I couldn't live with the fact that I hurt people and I hurt them really bad and why I did it there was no hope for me and so I found my dad's gun key and I unlocked it and when I loaded the gun up and I plotted it out in my head and I was standing there looking in a mirror This is it. I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to go through it. I don't have to think about it every day of why I did what I did and who I did it to. I could just be done. So I had the gun propped up against the wall and I stared in that bathroom mirror when I heard these tiny little footsteps coming through the house of my mom's house. My mom had ran some daycare, so she she had a lot of little kids that would run around. I'm a big kid myself and I refuse to grow up. So the kids love me. Uh, and uh, she come running through that house, and she stopped dead in her tracks. And she hadn't seen me in a year. She was seven at the time, and she had two front teeth missing. She looked right up at me, and she looked me dead in the face. And she said, Jeff, do you want a color? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I want a color. That's when the Holy Spirit hit me. That's when my life changed. And that guy on a gondola who told me about that gospel message of hope and restoration and healing and redemption and forgiveness and all these words that I knew nothing about, suddenly they made sense in this act of this little 7-year-old girl who just wanted to be with me. And and I knew that that's who the Savior was. He said, come to me, you who are weary and and burdened heavy laden, and and I'm going to give you rest, Jeff, and I'm going to forgive you. This hope is for me. This hope of, of, of renewal, of restoration, of change, of, of a, a hope in a Savior, it's for me. And thank goodness, thank goodness. But it's also about us. And the hope that is for us is that I'm not alone in it. I have brothers and sisters, a family of believers all striving for that same goal, all striving for that same hope. And then we uh, as a people together can be that hope for the world because the church is the hope of the world and Christ's community reminds me each and every day that I'm in it with a family.